Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Tullian Chavidian. He's the grandson of Billy Graham. He's written several award-winning books, been a celebrated preacher and pastor, and then his life fell apart. He lost his marriage, his church, and he wanted to end it all. And yet, in the midst of the wilderness, he found hope and new life. A friend of mine once told me that everyone is just a few bad decisions and a few days away from being a tabloid headline. If that describes you or anyone you know, this might be the conversation for you. I give you Tully and Chavidia. Tully, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me on. So your grandfather went to Bob Jones University for yeah, a time, for a season. For a short season. I we can't should remember. say by that, we should say, say the way, for people who don't know who your grandfather is, it's Billy Graham. Guy had a little, play, you know, preached a few places and played some golf with <laughs> Richard Dixon. <laughs> yes, my uh, mom is the oldest of the Graham five. So my mom has four brothers and sisters, uh, two brothers, two sisters. She's the oldest of five. So sometimes when people look at me a little confused because they wonder how in the world is my grandfather, Billy Graham, when my last name is not Graham, I look at them kind of puzzled and say, well, it's my maternal grandfather. So my mom was a Graham and she married a Chibijan. <laughs> uh, so that's how he is my granddad. Yeah, he's my maternal grandfather. Your mom must have loved your dad because I feel like some of getting married is like you go from a simple <laughs> name you know, to spelling a harder name. Like, you know, so like she traded a pretty easy name to spell. Yes. Like when you're on the phone, what's your last name again? Could you spell it again? Like, yeah, that's much, right. How much of your life have you spent spelling, spelling your name? name? Probably not as much as I have pronouncing it for people, but both are over the top. I mean, I have my entire life tried to help people uh, say it and spell it. So yeah, it's uh, it's brutal. And people look at it and think, where in the world are you from? Like, are you from a, a land far, far away? And the truth of the matter is I'm a Florida native. I was born in Jacksonville, Florida and raised in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The last name is Armenian. My dad's dad was from Armenia. My dad's mom was from Switzerland. My dad was born and raised in Switzerland. So I'm a quarter Armenian. I, I tell people all the time, uh, my name and my nose are Armenian. That's about it. And, and your grandfather was told by, he left Bob Jones, right? Like he left. Yeah, school. he went there. He went to Bob Jones University for a short season. I can't remember if it was for a semester or for a year, but he found it to be really legalistic, very oppressive. And so he went to Bob Jones, actually, out of courtesy to tell him that he was going to be leaving Bob Jones and going to a small Bible school in Tampa, Florida. And Bob Jones, as the story goes, famously looked at him and said, if you leave Bob Jones, you will end up becoming nothing more than a preacher somewhere out in the sticks. And of course, you know, as history tells the story, uh, he became a little bit more than that, which is pretty funny. So <clears throat> the moral of the story is Bob Jones is a bad uh, gauge of religious talent. Like if we were going to have a religious version of, uh, of The View or America's Got Religious Talent, he yeah. would not be the person we'd want. I think that's probably fair to say. At least on that one particular occasion, he got it wrong. That's definitely fair. <laughs> Growing up in a family where... Billy Graham is your grandfather. And it's interesting because some of your 
family has gone into religion vocationally and some have it and that kind of thing. I mean, is that, as you look back on your life, asset liability, I mean, like what's, what's that like? Cause I feel like on one level it probably opens doors mm-hmm. and on another level there are probably projections, expectations, like things that like that, that come with it, which I, I, you know, I don't know. I'm sure a lot of people, I'm sure it's just something that people wouldn't understand. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I was telling a friend recently that if there was any pressure to be good or perform or live a certain way or go into ministry, I never felt it. I don't know if my aunts or uncles ever felt that. I don't know if my brothers or sisters or cousins ever felt it, but I know I never felt it. And I think the primary reason for that is that my grandparents were remarkably down-to-earth people. They never carried themselves like they were important or better than anybody else. And therefore, I grew up very normally. I mean, I grew up knowing that my granddad was a well-known, respected preacher. Uh, But when we were around him, which was quite often, he was just extremely normal, very down to earth. Uh, and so that, that I think helped a little bit in terms of feeling any kinds of pressure. My grandparents certainly never put any pressure, spoken or unspoken, on us to be a certain way. They never pressured us to be Christians, much less, uh, you know, ministers or evangelists. I mean, they, uh, were remarkable in that way. They accepted us for who we were and they loved us where we were. And so I never really felt it. I think as I got older, um, and we can talk about this in a few minutes, but I, I really went off the deep end as a young teenager and dropped out of high school and got kicked out of my home and just sort of lived riotously for a handful of years before the hound of heaven absolutely tracked me down and defeated me. Uh, and at that point, I knew that I wanted to spend the rest of my life telling people about an amazingly gracious God who saves bad people like me. I knew I was bad. And the fact that God pursued me and loved me back to life was a remarkable thing for me. And so I knew I wanted to spend the rest of my life telling people about this outrageously merciful God, but I had no idea what form that would take. And so my sense of call to preach had absolutely nothing to do with my family. It had nothing to do in the sense that it had nothing to do with me feeling pressure to sort of go into the family business, to put it crassly, at all. Um, I, uh, I just I, I felt this internal summons to tell the world about God and his unconditional love for sinners. And, uh, and I had tons of friends at that time that I wanted to share the gospel with. I mean, you know, guys that I would party with on a daily basis. And uh, I knew down deep that they were looking for the same thing that had found me. And so I wanted to tell them about it. And then as time went on and I went to college and uh, then went to graduate school, went to seminary, uh, my calling to preach became increasingly honed. And for a while in seminary, I didn't know if I wanted to go on and get my PhD and teach theology or philosophy in a classroom somewhere, or if I wanted to go into the church world and pastor or preach. And I think it was in my second or third year of seminary that God really sort of honed my sense of calling to the church. But all my, it, I say all that to say that my sense of call had literally nothing to do with my family background. It had everything to do with sort of this internal call from God because of my own story and my own experience. And so in that sense, 
I have never found being the grandson or one of the grandsons of Billy Graham a liability. I've seen it as an asset. I have always experienced it as an asset, primarily because I was loved by my family. And that love from my family in and of itself was energizing and emboldening. And of course, when uh, it became clear to those around me that God was calling me to some form of ministry, they got behind it and they were excited about it. I mean, it was kind of a typical prodigal son come home story. And so my family was super excited, not only about the fact that I had sort of returned and come home, but that God was going to use all of my sort of wilderness wanderings to reach people in a variety of different ways. And so I, you know, I think the reason I never felt it was a liability was because um, they never put any pressure on me and they celebrated my return and my call. Did you ever ask your grandfather for like advice? Like in all the time. And church, what oh, was that yeah, like? I mean, what, what what did you ask him about? Like, oh gosh, I would ask him about preaching. I would ask him about uh, his own regrets in life. I would ask him about people that he knew. Talking to my granddad was fascinating because I, I speak about him like he's in the past. He's he'll be actually ninety nine years old in a week. Um, but he's you know he he can't really carry on much of a conversation these days so the best conversations that i had with him are in the past even though he's still alive today but um i think one of the most fascinating things about talking to him has always been the fact that he lived through 20th century church history i mean he helped create 20th century church history and so uh you know the the founding of some seminaries and the founding of christianity today and really the forging of the space that we now know as evangelicalism was all spearheaded by him and so you know just seeing god's providence and how he connected different people to my granddad over the years and how uh as a team they were used to do some pretty remarkable things that we now just simply take for granted uh is pretty remarkable so i would love listening to him him just talk. Like I would go sit in his room and just ask him a series of questions because I, I love history and I love church history and, uh, you know, all of that stuff. And so just sort of asking him questions about people that he knew and experiences that he had and the pressures that he would feel and sort of the insecurities that would plague him over the course of his life. And he was just so ridiculously relatable. I mean, he was just so normal. He wasn't this larger than life figure that towered over everybody else to the point where no one felt like they could touch him. He wasn't like that at all. Uh, he was a normal, broken guy who was very honest about uh, who he was and who he wasn't. He knew what he was called to do. He had been you know, asked and even pressured over the course of his life to do a whole bunch of different things, uh, become the president of universities. He was even asked to run at one point for the presidency of the United States. He was asked to be in movies. I mean, he was just a super famous guy and very charismatic. And so he was getting opportunities from all sectors to do a variety of different things. And he always stayed true to what he was called to do, which was preach. The gospel. That's what he knew he was called to do. He was so clear about his call that he never got distracted. And I think that, along with his robust humility, his down-to-earth humility, his deep-down belief that he was no better than anybody else, that he himself was the chief of sinners, he actually believed that, um, 
was probably what ministered to me more than, you know, any book I ever read that he wrote or any sermon that he ever preached that I heard or anything like that. You know, <clears throat> he was pretty honest about mistakes he made politically, like getting yeah. too close to someone like Richard Nixon and feeling and learn. And he remarkably transparent and honest about that. Yeah. You know, the, I just there was an NPR story this weekend about how uh, evangelicals have sort of um, become so politicized. And there's so many people that because of the politicization seem to really are, are leaving the church. Um, they're, they're, they're not atheists. They're just, mm. is there, I mean, are there lessons that we haven't learned like from your grandfather's experience? I mean, why do you, do you think is the church in a healthy state politically? Like it seems weird. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we are a politically polarized nation. There's no doubt about that. I don't think anyone would, I don't think anyone would question that. I think he, he has both publicly and privately expressed regret for aligning himself too closely with certain political figures and certain political parties and all of that stuff. And I do admire him for not only recognizing some of those early mistakes he made, but then spending the second half of his ministry really uh, avoiding those mistakes. I mean, everything from never publicly endorsing a candidate again, which, you know, he was pressured to do every you know, every election cycle, he was pressured by certain people on different sides to endorse, you know, particular candidates. And he just refused to do it. He knew that the moment he took a political stand, that there was a very good chance that someone who needed to hear the gospel would tune him out. Someone with a different political posture or someone with different political, you know, um, convictions would tune him out. And he never he wanted the only thing uh, – he, he wanted the only stumbling block to be the preaching of the gospel. He didn't want it to be uh, something he said about uh, a political issue or a social issue or a political candidate. He knew that that could easily become a stumbling block, and therefore there would be people on the other side of the aisle who need to hear the gospel who would then tune him out because of that. And so I think he was very simple – and very wise in his approach. Uh, I'm just ridiculously uncomfortable with any kind of, um, you know, public um, politicking from the church at all. I understand the need to be culturally and socially engaged, but this idea that the kingdom of God is flying in on Air Force One is just preposterous. And uh, and I think we can we can make certain stands depending on our convictions, without, um, I guess, clouding or overshadowing the primary message that we have been entrusted with, which is the nature of God's one-way love for sinners. You succeeded D. James Kennedy at Coral Ridge, yeah. right? And, mm -hmm. and that was, I mean, that's, I mean, w one of the hot spots of sort of political culture war stuff. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah. You, you don't, that has not been, I mean, I don't know anything about your politics or anything mm -hmm. like that, but like that doesn't strike me as who you you are. Like you're not a culture warrior like that. No. What, what like, how did that, I mean, that just seems like <laughs> a strange marriage. Like, like, I mean, how did, I mean, why would you do that? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, so what was interesting, yeah, I, um, my family knew um, D. James Kennedy. Uh, my grandfather knew D. James Kennedy. In fact, in 1974, when their current sanctuary had just finished being built, my granddad came and preached the dedication service in Fort Lauderdale. 
So there's long history there between uh, you know my family and the Kennedy family. When when my family moved to Fort Lauderdale in 1978, that's where we attended church. My brothers and sisters and I went to the school that the church operated, Westminster Academy. Um, and so there were lots of you know ties there. Uh, however, uh, you know in his later years, uh, Dr. Kennedy did become very political. And uh, I don't think anyone would question that or deny that he did become very political and he became a culture warrior. And, uh, you know, Coral Ridge did become sort of a, uh, a, you know, ground zero for the religious right, so to speak. So when he died uh, in two thousand late 2007, uh, you know, they put together a team of people to begin looking for their next pastor. And this was the first time in their life that they had searched for a pastor because he, D. James Kennedy, founded that church in 1959. And so, you know, the founding pastor was now dead and they were looking for someone to take his place for the first time in their, you know, history. And so they came to me at one point and I was, I had planted a church about 20 minutes northwest of Coral Ridge. Um, and our church was, you know, growing. God was doing great things in the church and doing great things through the church. And they came to me because I think there were a handful of people who had left Coral Ridge to come to the church that I had planted, uh, which was, you know, interesting. And so um, the, Coral Ridge had become older and older. Our church was younger. Uh, you know, our church was growing. Coral Ridge was in decline. Uh, Coral Ridge's heyday was behind them, not in front of them from what they could see at the time. And so they knew they needed something a little bit different. So they came to me and uh, to make a long story short, I said, listen, I'm honored. I'm humbled that I'm not interested. For the very reasons that you just mentioned, you know, I'm not a culture warrior at all. I'm, I'm not anything like that. I mean, I'm I've sort of got one bullet in my gun. That is it. It's the gospel. That's it. And so, um, so you know, they came to me a second time and uh, asked me again, and I said again, I'm honored, I'm humbled, but I'm not interested. When they came to me a third time, a handful of months later. I said, listen, this is a crazy idea, but the only re- the only way that I would ever even entertain this idea is if uh, we merged the two churches, uh, because I there is there is no situation in which this I this is imagine- like something out of The Walking Dead. Like we're going to bring our community, <laughs> yeah, bring our villages right. together and try to. And and seriously, it was I, I there was no scenario in which I could imagine leaving the church I had planted five years earlier to go twenty minutes down the road and you know become the pastor of this church. Uh, plus, in addition to that, I knew that we needed to change Coral Ridge uh, from what it had been to what it needed to be, and I knew I needed ground troops to be able to do that. So uh, I needed to bring you know my staff and the leadership of our church and the people of our church to do it. And so uh, it was such a crazy idea that we actually considered it, thinking, well, God may actually be in this. And so we put a team of people together from Coral Ridge and a team of people together from New City, which was the church I had planted. And we met together once a week for about three months and went through a meticulous due diligence process. And at the conclusion of that three-month period of time, it was pretty clear to everybody in the room that this is, in fact, what God wanted us to do. We knew it was going to be hard. We knew that lots of fireworks were going to go off. Uh, we knew that it was going to be incredibly difficult. I mean, think about it. You merge anything, and it's hard. You merge two families, two businesses, certainly two churches that are very different culturally. It's going to be hard, and we expected that. Um, and 
after it was spring, it was like I think March of March of 2009, the two churches came together as one new church. And for the first 10 days, it was this remarkable celebration. It was, you know, sort of the talk of the town that, you know, churches that normally split, you know, make the headlines. But now these two churches have come together and they've, you know, joined forces and all of that stuff. And that lasted about 10 days. And when that 10 days was over, all of the fireworks that we anticipated started to go off. And it really sort of launched me into a place of desperation that I had never experienced before. I had always been in places where I was widely accepted and loved and widely approved of and appreciated. And now for the first time in my life, I was in a place where lots of people didn't like me and they didn't know me, but they didn't like me. Uh, they didn't like what I was doing. They didn't like the way I was leading. They didn't like decisions that we were making. Um, and there were all sorts of bad things going on at that time and lots and lots of pressure. There were so many times during that season from like the spring of 2009 to the fall of 2009, so many times uh, during that season that I wanted to just quit. I mean, I was really at the sort of the brink of wanting to just throw in the towel completely. And what's fascinating and what's relevant uh, even now about that season is that's when I was forced to come face to face with the gospel in a way I never had before. I had always grown up believing, I think like a lot of people who may have grown up in church, believing that the gospel was for evangelistic purposes only. Like the gospel was for people outside the church. Once God saves you through the preaching of the gospel and now you're inside the church, the gospel's no longer for you. Now you right. need now something you're, Now different. you need religious programming. Right. You need religious programming. You need discipleship. You need teaching, you know, whatever, the, however they may have described it, but um, – but it was sort of like the gospel was the ABCs of the Christian faith. Uh, it wasn't the A to Z of the Christian faith. And so during that time, I, I was dealing with so many internal insecurities like, gosh, I, did, I just don't have the approval that I used to have. I don't have the love that I used to have. I don't have the acceptance that I used to have. And therefore, my very significance and value and worth was being threatened. And so that sort of existential crisis forced me into um, an encounter with what I call the now power of the gospel that revolutionized everything about my ministry, everything about my preaching, everything about my writing, everything about anything I would ever say to anybody. Um, and, you know, it helped me realize that once God saves you, he doesn't move you beyond the gospel. He moves you more deeply into the gospel. And at that point, what was so liberating to me was this idea that all of the love and all of the approval and all of the acceptance and all of the significance and worth and value that I was longing for and looking for via success with people inside the church was already mine because of what Jesus had done for me. So I already had God's approval, God's acceptance, God's love. You know, my worth and my value and my significance and my identity was all anchored in what God had done for me already. It was a done deal. And that that realization uh, was absolutely revolutionary for me. And what's I think what's fascinating is I grew up going to church my whole life. I grew up going to Sunday school and youth group and sitting in Bible-believing churches. And I even, you know, I went off the deep end for five or six years and then God brought me back and I went to a Christian college and uh, I went to a Christian seminary and, uh, you know, I was ordained in a large denomination and was pastoring and was 
you know, leading a church. And I had basically been in church uh, my on, or on the receiving end of sort of Christian teaching in the evangelical world for basically 35 years. And it wasn't until I crashed and burned that it dawned on me that the gospel was for me, too. It's crazy. At what point, okay, so it sounds like you went from a shift of a kind of, um, for lack of a better term, imperative indicative theology, like, do this and you'll be redeemed, to an indicative imperative, you're redeemed. So now, like, just, you know, let let the imperatives flow from that. Like, don't, you know, like, you you don't, you know, it's all, it it is finished. When When you realized that this was the sort of, the gold standard stuff of the gospel, this is the heart of it. Did you go back to your family and say, why didn't you tell me this? <laughs> like, how could well, I, how could I have like, cause you're a guy that I think is pretty identified with a sort of very grace oriented theology, which mm-hmm. that should be a sort of like redundancy. Right. But it's right, not. Right. So yeah. like, what was that like to go to be from a family that is so embedded, not just in the church, but in church history. How did you unpack that with them? Yeah, it wasn't, you know, I think we were all, um, my internal revolution when it came to the gospel uh, was something that I didn't, you know, the fact that the gospel was for me as a Christian, as a minister, that I needed the gospel just as much today as the day God saved me. That idea um, that we never move past it, we just move deeper into it, uh, was something I did not pick up. What If it was there in church or in my family or in any of the places I was growing up, I didn't pick up on it. It was sort of like I had whatever I was hearing over the years led me to believe that for the most part, Christianity was for pretty good people. And I knew I was bad. And because Christianity was for good people and I knew I wasn't good, Christianity therefore must not be for me. And so uh, once I sort of came to this realization that God loves bad people because bad people are all that there are. That God saves train wrecks because train wrecks are all that they all that there are. Um, I didn't get any. I, you know, it's funny. I, um, the only pushback I would get when it came to preaching the radicality of God's one-way love for sinners—that Christianity, uh, you know, is not um, is not a message for good people who are simply getting better. Christianity is really good news for bad people coping with their failure to be good. That idea uh, was received remarkably well from people who were acutely aware of how broken down and desperate they were. For people who had come to believe over the course of sitting in church year after year after year, that they were the good people in society, that they were, they they may not be perfect, but they're better than that guy. I love the way you know, our mutual friend David Zoll says, um, you know, we we all fall short of God's glory, but that doesn't prevent us from comparing distances, you know, like, hey, I, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm better than him. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm better than her. Um, you know, I, I think th- those are the people that push back. Like, now, wait a second. And, and I would say, you know, um, in the way you describe sort of this shift that took place, I would say as it pertains to my preaching, I noticed a shift uh, in the conclusions of my sermons predominantly. So 
in the early years of my preaching, all of my sermons ended with some variation of just do it. Uh, as I broke down myself and hit rock bottom myself, the shift went from just do it conclusions to it is finished conclusions. I wanted everybody to leave looking up and out, not in. I wanted people to understand that if they are a Christian, they live their lives under under a banner that reads, it is finished, and that's the last word. That's God's last word. Yeah, I, you know, I had a friend who's, uh, who's, um, was, he's a progressive evangelical pastor guy, and he's, he, one, at one point, we were reading, I think, some stuff from Tim Keller or something, and he said, I realized, he grew up in a pretty fundamentalist background, and he said, I realized, I just switched legalisms, like, I, well, I'm not doing like don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls that do. Like I'm not doing that anymore. But my new legalism is kind of be the people of God on the mission of God for the hospitality <laughs> yeah. of the stranger. And it's like I just learned a new pe- way to kick people's ass religiously. <laughs> right. That, that seems yeah. better attuned to my cultural sensibilities, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I no, I've I've actually talked about that in a variety of different places. That we've sort of in some circles we have um, we have sort of substituted a behavioral legalism for a missional legalism. Yeah. You know, sort of what it means. And I know that there are, there are, you know, good versions of this across the board, of course, but, um, you know, we have gone from exactly what you said, like certain behaviors we should not do or certain behaviors we should pursue and that God's disposition toward us is dependent on these particular behaviors that we either shun or pursue. Uh, that's in some cases or in some circles been substituted by um, God's disposition toward us is dependent on our service to our culture, whatever that service may or may not be. And so, yeah, there is now behavioral legalism. Don't get me wrong; is still very much alive and well in certain circles, uh, but in most, in a lot of younger circles, um, it really. It really is a missional legalism that has sort of, you know, taken root and taken over. And and we really do, you know, sort of um, come to believe that God's love for us, we may not say this, but, you know, that God's love for us is somewhat conditioned on how sacrificially we are serving our culture or loving our neighbor. And uh, any conditionality that is attached to the way God views us uh, ends up being oppressively legalistic, whichever way you come at it. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out 
on the Thank You Roll Call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, and Charlotte Donlin. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You have had like a rough go of it. You've made no secret of that. And, and I'm sure some of the pressures at Coral Ridge deeply contributed to that how how do you deal with criticisms that like well basically if you preach the grace of god and then your marriage breaks down or your life falls apart you see that's because you needed less grace i mean it strikes me that people who are not who are in very legalistic uh, church contexts and their life falls apart no one ever says well see it was too much morality <laughs> they need more grace <laughs> right but yeah. but, but you've been a spokesman for a kind of theology you know that's mm. exemplified by people like Steve Brown and our and our mutual friend Paul Zoll like mm. how how is it hard i mean do you is there do you have the sense like okay i let down the team i mean how do, how do you process yeah. that personally emotionally yeah that's a that's a big question. I, I okay. So first of all, I would say that my self destruction in uh you know 2015 was not the result of me believing the gospel too much. It was the result of me believing the gospel that I was so insistent on preaching too little. In other words, if you actually believe functionally, not just theologically or mentally or intellectually, but if you actually believe emotionally and functionally and existentially that everything you need in Christ you already possess, then uh, you're not going to be as prone to go searching for fool's gold when things start to feel empty or when you start to feel the voids in your life. Um, and some so of this, some of this for you, like when people are, yeah, you're again, you said you were the guy you weren't used to like this much resistance. And yeah. when you're getting it, is it like, is it that you, you just forgot to sort of say, it's like the Lutheran thing. I'm baptized. I belong. Yeah, you know, right. they can't take it away. And, and yeah, is it's somehow they become um, the opponents or the critics become the Lord of your life in some way? Yeah, I mean, for me, I you know I, I always go to Romans six because in Romans four and five, when people and I long before I crashed and burned a few years ago, um, and sort of my uh, sort of my bad decisions caught up with me and everything in my life sort of came crashing down. I um I was being at that point accused of sort of preaching this cheap grace that, you know, we have to balance uh, you know, grace with morality and all of this stuff. And and one of the things that I would say to people is um if you look at Romans 4 and 5 where, you know, the apostle Paul is waxing eloquent about um, you know the radicality of the gospel and the depth and the riches of you know Christ's substitutionary work on behalf of sinners and all of this stuff, and then he gets to Romans six and he essentially says, uh, "I know what you're thinking. In light of this amazing grace I've just been telling you about, you're probably wondering. So shall we go on sinning?" that grace may abound? And of course, Paul says, absolutely not. And then he does something fascinating. Instead of backing off from the gospel and going into this sort of long, um, 
you know, sort of dissertation about morality, he actually presses the gospel deeper in. He goes deeper into the gospel. And his whole point there is, uh, if you're thinking that in light of everything I just told you about God's radical, unconditional love for sinners in the person and work of Jesus, if your immediate reaction to that is, oh, that's great, now I can go sin more so that grace may abounds, that's not the result of you getting the gospel too much. That's the result of you getting the gospel too little. Therefore, I need to press it in deeper. And I would joke with people and I would say, let me ask you this. Uh, Have you ever met anybody? I mean, one person in your life who has been so captured and so captivated by God's unconditional love, his, his amazing grace, his outrageous mercy for undeserving train wrecks like me. Have you ever met one person who is so captured by that, that their immediate instinctive response is, now I can go out and, you know, uh, do whatever I want to do. And I want, I want to show God how much I hate him. I don't want to show him how much I love him. Like, it's just a, it's a straw man argument to say that. Like, I'm literally, the, the more I become aware of God's love for me, in spite of the fact that I don't deserve an ounce of it, the more I want to say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee, take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Like, I, the, the more I am, I mean, it's, you know, we love him because he first loved us. It is always his love for us that produces love from us. And uh, I just, I think it's a, it's a caricature straw man argument to say that grace is the enemy here. <laughs> it really is. I mean, grace is never an excuse for sin, but it is the only answer to sin and our problem with it. Our mutual friend, Paul Zoll, wrote something on your website, and he talks about this episode of The Twilight Zone called Dust. Hmm. And he says he remembers seeing it in January of 1961. And he talks about how in this episode, a handful of dust was turned by an act of prestidigitation into a contagion of forgiveness and goodwill, by which a condemned man who's actually on the gallows was forgiven. An entire town was converted to goodwill and compassion. A traveling magic act turned out to be the occasion of God's providence. Dust became mercy. And then he talks about your life. He says, in 2015, Tully and Chavidian was turned to dust, or rather a twilight zone form of dust. This is because everything Tullian thought he had and everything he thought he was got pulverized. Everything on which he had prided himself got pulverized. Tullian got turned to dust. And later he says, dust became mercy. I'm serious. Could you talk a little bit about your relationship with Paul Zoll, how you met Paul? And also, you know, after writing that, Paul took a lot of criticism. And and how how do you process that? Like I mean, you know, could you yeah? Could you talk, talk a little bit about your relationship with Paul? Yeah. So I met Paul years ago. Um, I was uh, given his book. Uh, <clears throat> I was given his book, Grace and Practice, or it was recommended to me by someone, or maybe I heard a couple of my buddies talking about it. And- I watched that Liberate interview you did with him. Yeah, I love that. Where he's like, you know, he he's so geeky. He's in like that Lands End kind of outfit. It was, it was like Florida meets um, the Northeast. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it was. Yeah, and that's exactly what it still is with us. It's so funny. But um, I, so I, I, you know, I don't know if someone gave me his book or I picked it up somewhere, but I read the first hundred pages in one night, and I was like, "This is gold, man." This is crazy I mean, practice. 
This is grace and practice. Yeah, yeah. I love that book. and it was just it was just gold. I was like, gosh, I, I love the way this guy writes. He's he's brilliant. He's quirky. Uh, he's insightful. He's on point. I mean, he was just really, really. He was Paul Zoll's communication style is very much like a fine wine to me. Even though I don't like wine, but uh, it's very much like eating fine food. I love his sense of humor, uh, everything about the way he communicated the message of God's grace. And he was so bold about it. Like he was making no apologies for it. It was almost like he had reached a point in life where he had taken so many hits for preaching this message. He just didn't care anymore about the criticism that came. He was, he was now there for the people who's, he was there. It was clear to me that he was now communicating for people that were getting hit by stones, not for people who were throwing stones. Who gave you the book? I don't remember. I really don't remember. Did you I don't call remember. him? I mean, what did you do? I mean, well, so what happened was um, after I read it, I uh, I don't know how I, I think, you know, our, our world is not that big. And I found someone that knew him that I knew and all of that stuff. Anyway, we got in touch. I wrote him an email or something. And he was so quick to respond. So, so quick to respond. And then I started doing research on this guy. And that's when his son, David, and I became good buddies. And um, I just, you know, I sort of got to know the family a little bit and then got them very involved in Liberate, which was a ministry that I started, which was a conference and a handful of other things. And uh, Paul, and I just became really close. My dad died in January of 2010, and I never expected any person to fill his shoes, but God did bring a handful of older men into my life that really did sort of, um, you know, guide me in many ways in my dad's absence. My dad was one of my best friends and a brilliant man and uh, just loved me in some remarkably unconditional ways. And um, I talk about him a lot in my book, One Way Love, because he was, for the majority of my life, the greatest embodiment of One Way Love to me. And so uh, Paul really kind of um, invested in me and we became friends. He, we became more than friends. I mean, he became a real mentor to me and became, whenever I would have theological questions, as I was wrestling through this stuff myself, I would write him and he would write back these eloquent emails or letters <laughs> and, you know, just explaining things in such a way that were so rich and captivating and gracious and warm and all of these ways. I just, and so we for just me, became for really me close. Paul, it was the podcast he did on crab movies. And, <laughs> and, 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 and at one point he says in it, um, he says, it's amazing. He's just describes something. He says, he talks about one movie where the scared little kid pulls out a ray gun mm. and shrinks the crab <laughs> and just says, wouldn't we all want to be able to do that? And like, you know what I mean? And, and that was, so, he didn't mention Jesus or God or the Bible or religion in the whole podcast. Right. Mm. But it was just this, that's what the God, right. The, 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 you know, with, with Joshua's, you know, sp they're giants in the land and we can't yeah, go right. in. You know, the, the, yeah. He has that way about him. Right. He really, really does. And so he and I became just, we, we were, we were friends and, uh, I really, leaned on him and looked to him in a variety of different ways. And, you know, he had gone through a rough patch himself, a really rough patch himself, and was sort of at the tail end of his career and uh, by his own admission was kind of uh, in hiding, so to speak, recovering and healing from some of the things he had been through professionally. And so <clears throat> I was really on a mission to 
reintroduce polls all. I, it's like I had found this gem that lots of people who were paying attention to me had never heard of before, who had never seen before or had read before. And so I was on sort of a mission uh, to introduce polls all, this gem I had found to the world. And um, and so I got him involved in a lot of different things that we were doing at the church at Liberate and you know various projects that I was involved with and when everything fell apart when when I self destructed in 2015 and everything fell apart literally overnight I mean I, I went from feeling like life was a fairy tale uh, one minute to life is a tragedy and I don't want to live anymore the next minute. I mean, literally you everything was gone. About, you, you, you wrote a suicide note. Like, I did. Yeah, I did. And, I've, and I kept it because I go back to it from time to time. What did, what did, As, are there things it said that you feel comfortable sharing? Uh, yeah, I don't, I mean, it's, I've got it on my phone and in my computer and so I don't know it word for word. I just remember, I remember feeling like, uh, I will never hope again. I will never be happy again. I've always been one to love life. I've always been an extrovert. I've always been a sort of a, a charismatic people person. I I love the sights and smells and sounds of life. I always have, always. I'm one of seven kids. I'm the middle of seven kids. And my mom would refer to me when I was young as the sunshine of the family because I was always, you know, I just loved everything. You know, I really did. I loved people and I loved the quirks and idiosyncrasies of life. I loved, um, I, I just loved life. And uh, the idea that I would live for the rest of my days without a love for life was so daunting to me. The idea that I would never have fun again, that I would never be happy again, that I would never have peace and joy again uh, was so daunting to me. I felt dead on the inside and therefore I reasoned I might as well be dead. And I was telling a friend the other day, I went through a, a period of time uh, where I contemplated killing myself every day. Not that I, I, I never got to the point where I was like, okay, uh, I've got it planned out. But the idea, what's crazy is the, whenever the thought would cross my mind that I could end my pain and misery right now, that I could end it today. Whenever that thought would cross my mind, I would experience this unbelievable relief. It was this temporary freedom of, okay, it's all gonna, all the pain's gonna come to an end. Um, and at the lowest point of my, of my life is when I actually researched on how to kill myself. Cause I didn't have a gun. I didn't want to like, you know, grab a knife and stab myself in the chest. I mean, I, I, I if I, if I was going to kill myself, I, I wanted it to be as least painful as possible. Um, and I was serious. Did you, Google? So, did you Google like how to kill yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Let's, I, I mean, I can't remember the exact words, but basically, yeah, I went on my computer and sort of Google. What did you find? Ways. I mean, wh I, are those websites, I mean, what are they like? Uh, dark. I mean, they're just dark. It tells stories of people who have done it certain ways. And, um, it talks about, uh, ways that have failed and the most successful ways that people, I mean, just, it's just, it's sad. It's sick, dude. It's like you, it's like you enter into a realm of such despair when you begin reading that stuff and people's testimonies and stories of how they tried and failed or how someone they loved committed suicide. And uh, it's just really, really sad. But that's where I was. And I had pretty much decided at that point, 
I'm going to do it. That was when I decided I'm going to do it. And I sat up late one night and researched how to do it and then wrote a letter. It wasn't a long letter, but it was a letter. And I was staying at a friend's house who was out of town. And my oldest son and his wife and their one-year-old son was staying in the house with me down the hall. And they were getting ready to leave and go back to their place the next day. And I thought, okay, once they're gone, I'm going to do this. And I fell asleep on the floor that night. And I woke up the next morning hearing my grandson running down the hallway. And uh, it just sort of, it like dawned on me. I'm like, I can't, like, I can't, like, I don't, I, I don't know about God and what his role is in all of this. I don't know about anybody else, but I know this. I love my three kids and I love my daughter-in-law and I love my grandson. And, uh, I have already put them through by my own unfaithfulness to their mother and the destruction of their family unit. I've already put them through so much pain and agony. I've already disrupted their foundation and their world so much. How in the world could I add this much pain to these poor kids who I've already caused to suffer so much? And so I decided not to do it. Um, but what's weird and I said this a minute ago, but the moment I decided I'm going to do it and I finished the letter, I felt relief, man. I mean, I literally felt relief, like all this pain's going to come to an end. The decision not to do it was, uh, was a decision to face life as a theologian of the cross, uh, to really not try to uh, avoid pain, but to trust God to yeah, give me the pain doesn't end, right? You just have a different no. relationship to it. <laughs> that's a, that you, that you, I mean, you said it perfectly. That's exactly right. It's God never promises that the pain is going to go away, but he does give us the resources to sort of accept it, uh, to, um, integrate it, so to speak, and to not deny it or stuff it or run away from it, but to really look at it and to embrace it and to really discover his, uh, unwavering presence and unconditional love in it. And I think that is when uh, life started to be breathed back into me. And um, so I, you know, in, in 2015, I, um, my, personal life fell apart. As a result of my personal life falling apart, uh, my professional life fell apart. Um, I lost everything from my marriage, uh, my 21-year marriage to- Because if you're like a stockbroker or if you own you know, a, a pool cleaning company or you're a lawyer and your marriage breaks up, you got your work. <laughs> you know, like, right. You, you kind of, you know, in, in fact, people at the job might not even know Right. Um, the extent of what's going on. But like, if you're a religious professional and your life falls apart, uh, where do you go? I mean, wait. Yeah. When you, when you're, you're, no, that's exactly right. If you, if I'm an attorney or a doctor and I have an affair or, uh, you know, something happens in my personal life where my marriage falls apart, my family's falling apart. Um, most of the people at work or most of the people in the office just, they, you know, they just don't, they don't care. Or maybe they care because they like you, but your your professional life is not at stake when your personal life falls apart. In ministry, it's a totally different ballgame. I mean, if your personal life falls apart, your professional life is pretty much over, depending on the reason it fell apart. In my particular case, uh, due to adultery, when that happens and you are a minister, uh, you can pretty much bank on the fact that your professional life as you know it is over. It doesn't mean that ministry is over. In other words, God will somehow use everything that's happening with you to reach people. I mean, in other words, the calling 
to take the gospel to the ends of the earth is not simply the calling of ministers or preachers or pastors. It's the ministry of Christians. And so, you know, it's not that ministry is over, but your professional life as a minister is, for all intents and purposes, over. And so that puts you in a place where not only is your personal life falling through the cracks, but your professional life, your financial life, your social life, uh, public credibility, opportunities. Uh, you know, I was writing a book a year and preaching not only every Sunday at Coral Ridge, but, you know, preaching, you know, 20 or 30 times, you know, a year around the country in different when places. When you sit in church now, is it hard like because you're gifted you're you know i i love your preaching you know i've heard it many times and is it is that a difficult experience it was in the beginning when all of this first went down i you know i was it wasn't like this was slowly deteriorating it was like it was a shock to the system to everybody because it literally went from one minute to the next you have everything on Wednesday, you have nothing on Thursday. I mean, that's literally the way it felt. Um, I'm not saying that things hadn't been building in a variety of different ways, but because uh, they were, but in terms of it, their effect, you literally go from having seemingly everything one minute to nothing the next. And so in the beginning, yeah, I was, it was like I was going through detox. You know, I don't know if you've ever been around anybody who I have been, I don't know if you've ever been around anybody who is going through detox from drugs or alcohol or whatever. I mean, they become crazy people, you know, for a short period of time, their, their body is uh, craving what it has gotten used to and you're not feeding it anymore. And so it's like, you're, you're spinning out of control internally and you don't know, you know, you don't know up from down and you're just you're 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 like a madman scraping the bottom of the barrel trying to find some residue of what of you know, the drug that you are so used to that your body's so accustomed to and so initially I was as I was going through detox I mean I went from preaching every Sunday and throughout the week and blah 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 to book contracts canceled speaking engagements canceled loss of a job overnight I mean literally overnight so everything that I had pretty much, uh, unbeknownst to me, built my life on, both personally and professionally, was gone. Do you and it was to the point where you you just you get the phone calls and you know what the phone calls about. Like like okay, I know, <laughs> I the book contract is canceled. Like do you, do you start rehearsing your speech? Like uh, no, I never rehearsed my speech, but I wasn't surprised when all of these things just went away. And and I'm not even. I'm not blaming any, I'm blaming, I mean, the blame is squarely on me. Like I didn't, it's not like, oh, poor Tully and he lost all, I mean, my gosh, I brought this on myself. You know, I self-destructed. I, my own sin is no one's fault, but my own period. So, um, you know, I have dealt with a lot of guilt and shame and regret, uh, because I tanked my own life. I remember not long ago, my oldest son who was living with me for a while, uh, he was sort of asking me some specific questions about, uh, you know, my professional life. And I was, you know, explaining to him more specifically some of the, you know, great opportunities that God had given me and all of that stuff. And he looked at me at one point, he's like, well, dad, I mean, you, you really blew it. You know, here I am living in this, you know, two bedroom house and you know, a rural area of Texas with my wife, Stacy and my 22 year old son, Gabe, uh, and, you know, trying to figure out what, what is, what's the next half of my life going to look like. I, I don't really know what I'm going to do. I'm kind of confused as to who I am. 
Um, and you know, he's asking me all of this and sort of witnessing the life that I had to the life that I now have. And just looking at me and kind of smiling and going, dad, you, you really blew it, didn't you? I was like, yes, son, I did. It's no one else's fault, but my own. I understand that regardless of, you know, whether it's in, in anyone's particular case, if you're in a ditch because it's someone else's fault, or if you're in a ditch because it's your own fault, at, at some point you go, either way, I'm in a ditch. <laughs> I mean, I'm here. I, I'm in a ditch. And, um, and I, I feel like it's a, it's a grave. And I don't know what I'm going to do. And I don't know what's next. So initially, when I would go to church after all this stuff fell apart, it was hard because I'm like, I want to be preaching. You know, I want to be praying the confessional prayer. I want to, you know, I want to be doing the things. That's what I've always known my entire adult life. Now it's not that way. Now I actually, my wife, uh, Stacy and me and my oldest son, Gabe and his wife and my grandson, Mason, we live on the Southwest coast of Florida and we go to a small Lutheran church that's pastored by a friend of mine and we love it. I mean, I just, I love just going to church on Sunday and, you know, hearing, the gospel preached and, you know, taking communion and tasting the gospel and, uh, you know, being diagnosed by God's law and delivered by God's gospel and just receiving ministry. I mean, I, I have no role of leadership. I mean, I'm just, we're just at the church and, um, and I, we love it. We actually love it. I, I, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited that I don't have to preach. (laughs) Actually, on a weekly basis. Paul Zoll said something on your website. He said, I feel it's important to say this so the reader will know that Tullian has not been a fugitive from justice, but rather he has been under supervision, and I mean pastorally the whole time. From lies to truth, from running to repentance, I've been through it all with him, and I've never abandoned ship. I hope I never will. What Tullian is about is too important. Hmm. What made the difference between lies and truth and running or repentance? Like when your back was against the wall, hmm. what were the things that drove you further into darkness? And what were the things that were invitations home? How did that, you know, could you share yeah. a little bit? Because there are lots of people listening to this. They're probably, they, they, their back is against the wall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you've yeah. been in places and are in a unique place um, because, I mean, and it's it's awful that like your personal life uh, has to be you know discussed everywhere. This is public. This is life today, and the internet and these things. But like, mm. but you also do have a unique um, position. To most people would probably feel uncomfortable talking about stuff like that. Yeah, my sense is you're not. No, I mean, I, now I'm not, um, you know, initially when all of this happened, I was embarrassed, of course, you know, I was exposed and I was embarrassed and, um, you know, I was doing everything I could to sort of spin the story and manipulate the story and sort of, you know, get people to feel sorry for me and to see me as a victim and blah, blah, blah. It was just all bull crap. I mean, it really was, it was just nasty. It was, it was, I was in full self-salvation mode. Really, I was just trying to reclaim and recover those things and that life that I had become so dependent on internally. Uh, well, when you go through detox, you know, metaphorically detox and rehab, like I have been uh, over the last, you know, couple of years, uh, you, you you get to the point where you know you're like, okay, there's no story to spin anymore. Like I'm I'm absolutely guilty, um, of everything that I've actually done. And, um, I, the, the gospel is true for me. 
and God loves me, and he has surrounded me with some people who persistently remind me of that when I get into a dark place of despair and regret and shame and guilt and all of those things. So I have nothing to lose by telling the truth. You know, I think it was Janis Joplin said, um, you know, freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. Well, you know, when, when you've lost everything uh, and you have nothing left to lose, you know, it's, it's easy to tell the truth about yourself. It really is. It's like, I, I really don't care what people think. I mean, I, you know, the, I, I know who I am. I know what has actually happened. I know what I'm guilty of. I know who loves me. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm therefore free to sort of share my story with no spin. And I think what got me to that place, and, and there's, it's no secret. I mean, the, um, gosh, I, um, the Bible makes it pretty clear that love, not law, produces love, that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. And so I think we make a mistake inside the church or in our relationships when we come to believe that the law actually has the power to produce what the Bible says only love can produce. So the more I got, um, the more people came down hard on me, the further I ran. Uh, the more that people like Paul Zoll and a handful of others and my wife, Stacy, the closer they moved in. So the worse I got, it, it, it was interesting. Your best friends are made when you're at the bottom, not the top. That's when you really know. When you're at the top and you have so much to offer everybody, it's really hard to know who your friends are. When you're at the bottom and you have nothing to offer but leprosy and liability, you take notice of who's there. And uh, the people who are left um, when you bottom out are the people whose love will bring you back to life. And I think um, – and, and they didn't just tell you what you wanted to hear. I mean, it's, oh, my it, gosh, it sounds no. like actually <laughs> – No. They – they got themselves in a place of proximity to tell you what you yes. needed to hear. Like, right. They, they could, did they, it, was it like, was it winning the right to be heard kind of thing? Yeah. They were so invested relationally, both my wife, uh, Stacy and Paul Zoll and a couple others, they were so invested relationally that they had, um, th they never gave up when they could have and would have been fully justified in giving up. They never gave up. It was kind of like initially when I, when I fell, uh, you, you know, you'd be surprised because people move in pretty quickly. You know, lots of people do move in pretty quickly because for whatever reason, I don't know. But um, then they begin to discover more and more about you and they begin to uncover layers that they didn't know existed. And what you discover is slowly but surely some of the people who moved in the quickest are moving out the quickest. But then there are those very few handful of, you know, very few people who will stick it out, who won't bail. Come hell or high water, they're not bailing. And it's those people that God expresses his unconditional one-way love through that ends up softening your hard heart. And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's like you're... You know, it's it's like you're sitting on your dad's lap when you're a kid and you just keep slapping him in the face and slapping him in the face. If he finally puts you if he puts you on the ground or puts you over his knee and spanks you for doing it, uh, you may stop slapping him, but you're not gonna necessarily feel your dad's love. But if he never retaliates 
ever and just pulls you in closer. At some point, you're going to go, I feel bad slapping this guy. You know, I just, I feel like a jerk slapping this guy. And your hard heart gets softer. And, you know, the illustration I always use is, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm sitting on the couch and my wife and the garbage is full and my wife says, you know, can you take out the garbage? And I say, yeah, I will in a second. Uh, let me just wait for a commercial. Uh, you know, and then a few minutes later, she says, hey, you know, can you take out the garbage? I said, honey, I, I said I will. I'm just I'm waiting for a commercial. Okay. And I start getting a little perturbed. Um, you know, if she can do one of two things. Okay. If she quietly takes out the garbage herself, okay, and brings it out and then comes and sits with me on the couch and puts her arms around me and sort of cuddles up next to me and goes, honey, what are you watching? I'm going to feel like garbage, dude. I'm going to be like, I feel like such a jerk. You know, I, why didn't, honey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't take out the garbage. I really am. I'm sorry that that, what, Getting watching this show is more important than serving you in that moment. I, my heart's going to be soft to her if she says, "I've told you ten thousand times again, all you care about yourself." But that's not going to warm me up to her, even though she may be right. That's going to make me go, "Gosh, man, I don't want to be yelled at. I don't want to be." Um, but th- the fact that you know she would just sort of overlook, you know, that that love her love would cover over a multitude of my sins is going to soften me up. And I think the two supreme people. Outside of my kids, because my kids were very much like this too. Gabe, Nate, and Jenna were very much like this. Outside of my children, the two supreme people who treated me that way um, were Paul Zoll, who never gave up, and my wife, Stacy, who never gave up. And thank God they didn't, because God knows where I would be if they had. You you said when you thought of committing suicide, it's like there's no kind of zest for life, no more hopes, no more dreams, no more. Like, I, Are there hopes and dreams now? I mean, do you, do you have dreams or things you'd, you'd like to do that, you know, what are those? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think um, the happiness and the joy and the peace and the freedom that um, God has given me to begin this second half of my life uh, really does revolve not so much in, uh, not so much around what I hope to do but more in terms of um, who I now am, who God has surrounded me with, and what I've been freed from. And I think those things give me a reason to live and make life lighter now than it was, you know, two years ago, three years ago. In terms of what I hope to do, you know, for the first time in my life, I just don't have a plan. (laughs) I really don't, which is, you know, which is disconcerting to me at times. Sometimes it keeps me up at night. I don't have a plan. I don't have an agenda. I, I started this website a couple months ago and Basically, it was a place for me just to deliver good news to broken down people because I um, had processed with the help of counselors and Paul Zoll and my wife, Stacy, I had processed through so much stuff and uh, found myself in a place where I really realized I, I can help people with my story to some degree, um, I, you know, to, to whatever degree God chooses to use it. I believe he can and will use my story of falling to the bottom as a way of encouraging people and helping people who are where I was or who where I or are where I currently am or even people who are on the brink of falling flat on their face. Um you know, I I really do have a passion in whatever form or fashion God, you know, grants. Uh, it could just be in conversation. It could be with my kids. It could be just through writing a blog or whatever. It could be through tweeting something. I don't know. But I really do have uh, 
a heart and a passion to communicate God's boundless love to broken people and to a broken world. And you know, Scott, the fascinating thing is um, I, because of what I've done and because of what I've put people through and because of what I've experienced and because of the rock bottom nature of what my life has looked like over the past couple years due to my own sin and selfishness. Um, my heart is actually bigger for people now than when I was a pastor. That's the irony of the whole thing. You know, when I was a professional pastor, which I'm not anymore, um, you know, there was just, it was sort of like building ministry and creating content and, you know, all of that stuff. And, um, you know, I just, gosh, it feels so good not to, not to be ambitious anymore, if that makes sense. You know, it just feels so freeing to do that and to really see people as persons who need ministry rather than uh, to see people as places to build a ministry. And, um, and so my, my, I actually have a, a more tender, enlarged heart for uh, hurting people now than when I was a pastor. That's sort of the irony of it all. Um, so I don't know what's next. I really don't. I mean, I, I, I'm a writer. I know God's gifted me to write. I know he's gifted me to sort of communicate those, those, the, the natural giftedness doesn't go away. Um, whether you have a specific calling or not, uh, but the natural giftedness doesn't go away. And so in whatever form or fashion God gives me, which is not going to look anything like what my life used to look like. I mean, I don't, foresee me pastoring a church or standing behind a pulpit every Sunday or anything like that. Um, so I don't know what it's going to look like. I have no clue what it's going to look like. I just know that uh, to whatever degree God allows me and enables me, like I said, it could just be in private conversation. I get a job selling cars and just have conversations with my clients who come to buy a car. I don't know, whatever form or fashion it is, the mission hasn't changed. How to deliver God's inexhaustible grace to exhausted people. Tony, thanks for spending some time talking with me and thank you uh, for not taking your life. Yes. Well, thank you. I think um, I'm glad you're still no, in the game. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I'm alive too. And um, you know, a real shout out does need to go to my three kids, Gabe, Nate, and Jenna, who have, who have really been through a lot and um, whose very foundation of life has been shaken to the core and they're, love for me and their forgiveness of me is just so undeserved and life-giving and we're closer now than we've ever been and uh if if anyone goes to the website tullian.net i actually wrote a piece called it's okay to admit that you're not okay and i i very in a very raw way sort of recount when i sat down with my three kids to tell them that i'd been unfaithful to their mother it was a painful piece to write but it really is in many ways a tribute to them I, I'm just, uh, when you bring up, I'm glad you're alive. Uh, I am too, for a variety of different reasons, but primarily because uh, I love being their dad. And um, I'm hoping that they will learn about God's love and mercy and grace more through my messed upness than all of my put togetherness, you know, uh, was for them before. So anyway. Talian, thanks so much for, for talking with me. This is great. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. 
go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Tullian for coming on the podcast and sharing his story. You can follow him at Tullian.net. And thanks again to you for listening to the podcast. Until next time, friends, fare thee well. <laughs>